from Andres Bergen, the acclaimed creator of the popular graphic novel Bullet Gal, comes the retelling of the classic Tristan and Isolde. Tristan Holt turns things on its head and places our heroes in a 70s pulp world. Queenie rules with an iron fist, and when two of her best men are killed, it's up to her niece Trista to find out what happened. Tristan Holt by Andres Bergen. Available online at If Comics. That's if question mark C-O-M-M-I-X. Issues also available at dollardownloads.com. You're listening to the Canned Air Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Welcome to another episode of Candare, a tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Doherty. And joining us today from StarPowerComic.com, we have artist Garth Graham and writer Michael Terracciano here to talk about the Kickstarter they have going for Volume 2 of their webcomic, Star Power. Thanks for being with us, guys. No well, problem. Thank you for having us. Real pleasure. And uh, congratulations again to you. Uh, it's crazy how successful your Kickstarter yeah. has been with 22 <laughs> days to go. It's uh, we, yeah. We have some of the most amazing fans, like truly. They they really have blown us out of the water with their support this year for this one, and the fact that we still have we're only starting our second week, and we're very close to our second stretch goal. Is I mean I have no words for. It's but insane. that kind of support, yeah. it's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> Those are the words you're looking for. But that's, it's awesome insane. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk in our uh, retro roundtable today about Batman, seeing as how this past Saturday was it, was uh, Batman, Batman Day. Day, which I had no I had no idea it was even a thing. It's like until... everybody's got a day now. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? Much. Worth Candar Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> today will be it. Then we'll go around the table talking some comics, and then we'll turn our attention over to Mike and Garth and talk about star power. So, let's kick this off with this week's Retro Roundtable. Here we go! <laughs> All right, like I said, guys, we're going to be talking about Batman. So the best place to start would be uh, going around the table, our, our favorite versions of The Dark Knight. You guys want to go first? What's, what's Scar think? I think my favorite version of Batman has got to be Batman from the animated series. The early episodes where before they teamed up with the Superman and started doing the whole JLU thing. Yeah. Um, I like that one specifically because Batman and Bruce Wayne were... Same voice actor, but he, he he did them differently. He made right. them two distinct characters. And I, I don't see that with a lot of other... The separation of Bruce Wayne and, and, and the Batman persona doesn't seem to like happen in a lot of... Uh, a lot of iterations. I, I appreciated that. I've always liked, you know, playing with. If you're going to have a superhero with a secret identity, I feel like that should be something that you like. I don't know. Talk about. You know, right. deal with. Exactly, and I couldn't agree with you more. That's everything Batman that comes out. I always hold up to the animated series. That's just the definitive definition of Batman for me. What about uh, what about you, Michael? 
Guy stole my answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and for the exact same reason, too, you fucker. <laughs> um, so no, so yeah, no, you better have something original to say, Mike, or we're hanging up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, for me, too, it was the animated series. And f again, for that reason, uh, it was probably the most likable version of Bruce Wayne when I really started caring about comics and superheroes. And I was watching the animated series back in the, uh, the early 90s when it came out. I'd come home from high school. Oh, me too. Yeah. I'd put it on and I would just be lost for a half an hour. Um, and the, the differences in his voice, too, they weren't really extreme. Like when he was Bruce Wayne, it was kind of like at a higher register, like this. Oh, hello, Commissioner. Oh, hello, Board of Directors. Oh, hello. Right. Like when he very, was Batman, uh, very charming, little, everything he says. Yeah. But when he was a little bat, when he was Batman, it was just a little lower, like this. Right. Not too. Uh, yeah, not <laughs> Christian Bale Batman. <laughs> Which I get. I mean, I, I mean, I get why that would work. I mean, a, a movie is a different medium than a cartoon, and when you're a right. voice actor, just the slightest difference in your voice can. You can believe that someone is voicing two different characters with just a slight shift in a voice like that, but when you're looking at somebody, whether in person or through film, I can see why they would have to push for a much more exaggerated, like, Batman growl to believe that that's, that's how much he has to disguise his voice. I don't necessarily like it, but I understand why they did it. Well, I, but I I'm getting off track. No, um, you're absolutely right. I would have to totally join you. It is irritating. Uh, to hear it sometimes, but keeping with the realism that they're trying to achieve with those movies and being a, a well-known person all around Gotham, you know, everyone knows who Bruce Wayne is. Mm -hmm. He would have to probably go to those measures to... Well, you're trying to sound scary, too, so what better way to right, be, like, right. all real gruff and mean sounding? In the height of your enemy's fear and terror... Yeah. That voice coming out to back it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think about it, Michael Keaton did it too. Yeah, uh, uh, yep. Yeah. He just didn't yeah. do it as much. As much. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, it's really funny that we're talking about Batman. We were just talking, my wife and I were just talking about Batman like yesterday and, um, and the animated series, actually. <laughs> and uh, she outnerded everybody because she knew Mr. Freeze's wife's name off the top of her head. The rest of us had to think about it. She just snapped it right off like oh Nora Nora Freeze oh, okay yeah. what the beat me to it <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there thinking I'm like what is it I know right we were all like, like, I should know this Mrs. And she say my wife Nora <laughs> and she knows it because she was a huge DC fan growing up and um, she would tape for the animated series on VHS mm. all the time and the one she rewatched the most was Heart of Ice mm. oh yeah and like we came to this agreement, like if you do not cry at the end of Heart of Ice, you're probably somebody I don't want to know. <laughs> right. And I think that's what made that show so good. You know, a lot of the time it wasn't just black and white hero villain kind of stuff. You felt for the bad guys, too. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying anything original. This has been said a million times <laughs> over again. But uh, you can uh, like you're saying, it touches you on an emotional level rather than just bad guy wins again. You know? Yeah. Or it a good guy. Uh, wins. Excuse me. Wasn't it the animated series that like retconned Mr. Freeze's like backstory? Like, wasn't he just like a jewel thief before the animated series? Did the whole thing with the with his wife and the, the cryonics? That I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Either. I don't know. Well, if it, if they did, they made a good decision. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very good doubt. Yeah, because it made you care for him. You, you made you yeah. think, what would I do in that situation? I'd probably do the same thing to think about Absolutely. the person you love. Yeah. But uh, it was also the animated series that brought us Harley Quinn. Yeah. 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 Oh, the, yeah. the series did a lot for, for the Batman, you know, uh, mythos. Like, oh. they, they added some of the most endearing, uh, amazing characters in the Gotham, Ludhaven, Tri-State area or whatever it is that they'll hang out in. I always thought that was a little weird. You know, Dick Grayson never goes to Metropolis, even though they're in the same world. Yeah, very yeah. few of them visit their other people's cities. It's, Although that's one thing I do like about the DC DCU is that all of the like, most of the cities are these made up locales from Metropolis to Gotham to Bloodhaven to Fawcett City to Star was it Star City? Star City, yeah. All of them. Really? But, yeah. You enjoy that about DC? I love I lo- the fantasy locales, even though they were urban, modern and urban. Right. You know, Metropolis was like the city of tomorrow, wasn't it? I can't remember. But you Gotham know, you're right. hyper gritty, about that. this hyper gritty hellhole of yeah. a city. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst parts of New York. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been the opposite. I, I've always loved Marvel for grounding it in our reality. Not that I They're all in New York. Well, That's I'll give you that, yeah, yeah without a doubt. <laughs> New York's big. <laughs> man. A lot of overlapping, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Daredevil went to San Francisco. Oh, yeah, after. Yeah. Oh, did he? <laughs> well, Tony Stark's there now, too. I'm not really posing an argument here. I'm going to roll right with what you said. But, it, I mean, I was reading Marvel through the 90s, and it was the animated series of Batman that made me have an interest in the character. I mean, I, I liked the Michael Keaton movies, but they were nothing more than just a kind of a good movie. It didn't make me obsess on the character like right. the animated series did. By you. You spent more time with the character in the animated series. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Let's say the- also, had that sweet, like, Art Deco style. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know. I, I like that. That, that. that grabbed me. The art direction of, of the, the show was just utterly top-notch. Bruce Tim, Bruce Tim, right? That's the guy who. Yeah, the, yeah he mm-hmm. said that uh, they modeled that heavily around the nineteen what was it forties Superman cartoons. Mm-hmm. I think oh, that are really? they're Actually. like public domain now. But if you compare, go back and forth and compare the two cartoons, you see a lot of the same shot, a lot of the same shadowing, and uh, even yeah. some of the same uh, buildings uh, like design that you're talking about. I was going to ask hmm. if they took that from like the the Keaton Batman movie. Because everything, even though it was real dark, like all the cars were real old-style cars. Yeah. Everyone wore, like, fedoras and trench coats and stuff. They were, I think they were trying to make it seem of the... I don't know. That's See, that's what that movie is always kind of confused with me. And even the animated series a little bit. Because, like you're saying, all the cars look uh, 1940s, 1950s. Right. But then t- technology keeps popping up, even outside of what Batman has. That's I think that's what I liked modern. about Gotham when I was a kid, that it was this weird sort of throwback city in the modern era. Like, no one just sort of questioned that you drove those old cars and everything looked like it came from, like, the Maltese Falcon or Chinatown. And then you had cell phones. (laughs) You know, I'm kind of seeing your point now because something like that would not exist in New York. So the fantasy realm that is Gotham... You know, comfortably contains that. I never thought you about that. You can do that. what you want in those cities, pretty much, without. Yeah, it. I mean, it's it's interesting because you know, I mean, Batman at his heart is you know he's, he's basically a you know a, no- a very fancy noir detective. You know, right. he, the detective comics kind of came out of that pulpy kind of adventure. 
right uh, all of that era and i think batman's always kind of kept that kind of feel to him uh whereas you know say superman fits you know well at home in just about any era right yeah that's true what about mm-hmm. you jack what would you say your favorite uh incarnation of the batman is probably starting out because it it really got me into it more than the blue and gray batman from the cartoons and the 66 with michael keaton because that that pretty much started it for me say the 66 series no the michael keaton the michael keaton ones. i mean i always always liked batman from like when they were on scooby-doo batman and robin right and 66 well. it was fun being a kid but then <laughs> being what like 13 i think when the the keaton batman movie came out mm-hmm. that changed it all because he was so dark and yeah, mm-hmm. I, I had a very protective mother. I, I guess I still do. But uh, <laughs> she's not keeping me from seeing the movies I want to see today. But then <laughs> then it was a different story. And I didn't see that movie till a few years after it had come out. But, um, again, it was really good. I still didn't have a grasp on the character. The, the only Batman knowledge I really had was watching Batman 66 and syndication. Right. But, again, it wasn't the until the animated series that I fell in love with the character. That was all mm-hmm. Batman all over the place after that movie came out. Yeah, my dad bought me a big, thick comic. It was probably my first comic that had a whole bunch of different Batman st- comics in it throughout the the years, and even had like screenshots from like the before black and white '66 Batman. Oh, really? When they were, nice. it looked like he had horns pretty much instead of the ears. You can buy those DVDs, and you can probably even watch them on YouTube. But they're almost kind of creepy to watch. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm it was expecting real weird like looking at those some pictures. long-haired girl in the background to like stare me down while I'm watching the scene. <laughs> like, oh, I can't watch this crap. <laughs> There are other versions of Batman uh, that I've, I, I don't know. I mean, I've lost track of whatever the hell comic book continuity is they're going with now since reboots and resets. I don't freaking right. know. But I remember a few years ago when uh, after one of the crises, Dick Grayson took over as Batman. Like he took the cowl. So like that's a Bat- story I always wanted to read but never knew what it was called or anything. Oh, it was is that just a Black Mirror one. No, that it was after uh, what was it? Batman was gets that? lost like in time the thanks to Dark or something. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I it's thought it was the mantle of the bat or something like yeah, like, taking the mantle. Like that. Of I seem to remember like Dick Grayson and all of the other like bat children, Bruce Wayne's extended family, as it were, <laughs> duking it out for the right to be Batman now. Right now that Bruce is lost in time or wherever he was. Yeah, he was like lost in time. Wasn't or shot. Something. I don't know. But I, I mean, that was when I first picked up a Batman comic because I was interested in somebody new taking the cowl and it wasn't somebody out of the blue it was somebody from the damn history and someone mm. so important to the history Robin who uh, I think I have this right historically like Batman comic book sales were low nobody was buying it right they introduced Robin and he saved the series kids were buying the damn book now so to make him the new Batman and to see his journey going through, like, just how weird it is to wear a cape. Right, yeah. For the first exactly. time. Like, like, I haven't worn a cape in years. It feels like I'm wearing a circus tent. Right. You know, just, uh, I loved Dick Grayson as Batman. I know a lot of other people did too. Uh, I'm sad they didn't stick with that. I think it would have been a cool thing um, yeah, to, watch to move play Bruce Wayne to a more mentor position and keep, maybe when they brought him back from being lost in time. I liked that, and I would have liked to have seen it continue to this day, but I'm not in charge over at DC, so who cares what I think? <laughs> yeah, 
I totally, I would love to read that book. I have seen excerpts from it, and I've seen part, like, pages of a scene where uh, Dick Grayson as Batman, he looks very traditional, the Batman we all know, is there fighting Jason Todd's version of Batman, which pretty much is the gray and blue again, mm, but he has, yeah. like, the pointed shoulders. I think his eyes are red, and his mouth may be covered, and he's got claws on his fingers, mm-hmm. and, oh, he looked badass. <laughs> but, um... I, you know, ultimately, I'd like to see Dick Grayson win that one. I, I think Dick Grayson always wins out over Jason Todd. That's why Jason Todd's so bitter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure, yeah. Well, it always ends up with Batman coming back and uh, taking yeah. the mantle over. In the 90s, I remember after, you know, I was reading Spider-Man when the animated series hit. And then after that, I was like, okay, I got to start getting Batman comics. Now, I can't say what the story arc was at the time, who was writing, or even, you know, who the artist was, but I was not bowled over by those Batman comics. They were... The the real long-eared Batman? Really long-eared. I don't even think it's, like, the (laughs) traditional one everyone knows. Like, they'd go up and, like, cross each other and, like, go the other way. And (laughs) very, very, very over-exaggerated. I wasn't big on the art. The stories were okay. I'm trying to remember the very first Batman book that really... uh, got me i guess it wasn't even a comic it was uh that book right back there on the shelf it's called batman the ultimate evil have you guys heard of that no i haven't heard of that no, one i haven't heard of that one i can't even tell you who the author was i can't remember off the top of my head but uh, i think this was the one and only batman book he ever wrote but it's about batman is you know he's just doing what he does fighting crime and he starts realizing it's you know not enough just to fight the criminals but you have to get down to the root of the problem where are the criminals coming from so he starts uh, kind of like hanging out with these social service people, looking at uh, you know fam like broken families growing up with children, how these children are being raised and stuff, and eventually through all this digging finds out that his mother and father's death wasn't an accident. It you know wasn't a coincidence. It was an actual hit put out because his mother had been doing all this secret work about stopping like uh, the trade of children for like uh, sex mm-hmm. purposes you oh, know wow. overseas. Yeah, very heavy, like, um, adult themes in it. Yeah. And it's funny because I, my, uh, I think my folks got it for me at like age of like 12 or 13. So <laughs> they have no idea. Right. <laughs> it's Batman and it must be good. Yeah. It's fine. Right. It's fine. But, you know, he then, uh, he goes overseas and takes down that whole operation. And it's, it's a great book. And if you're ever at all interested, you know, not only is it in, or I don't know if it's still in print, but I'm sure finding a copy on uh, line would not be hard but there's just the novel version there's an actual comic version and i think if you go to itunes and just type in batman the ultimate evil you can download in podcast form the whole audiobook for free. you oh yeah. wow yeah so i strongly recommend it if you're a batman fan cool well, check that out yeah that's yeah. enough of me blabbering someone else talk about <laughs> batman <laughs> your uh, favorite batmobile Ooh, Ooh. favorite batmobile that's rough. There's been a lot of really cool designs. Yeah. I'm going to go with the Adam West Batmobile. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. Nice. There's something about the there's just something about the, the theme song and the, the, the oh yeah, the yeah. Fire now, are you talking exhaust. like I've just That's won the just lottery. That's a cool fucking car. <laughs> like do you, are you saying like if I could own one? Or are you saying just, you know, right sitting here preference? Oh no, that's my favorite, yeah, pre- my favorite preference, Batmobile. My favorite one. Come back to me. I'm going to have to think about that one. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with my favorite Batmobile is the one from ba- uh, Batman Beyond. Uh, I, I really, Ooh. yeah, I really loved the the 
crazy arrow car bat styling of i mean it's technically it's a batmobile but it's a flying car so it's more like a yeah you know, i think it like cloak itself too yeah that thing was yeah. pretty cool yeah it was i forgot all about that one one of them that stands out for me is the one of the older ones that just has the the bat head on the front end. Yes, oh, I was just going to say that. Oh man, I don't know why that one always stood out, but that was that's like going back to the same era he was talking about when it was more like uh, detective work, you know, solving yeah. crimes and stuff. It was like just an old uh, old like Chevy yeah. wagon with the <laughs> freaking bat head on the front Have of you, it. You've seen the comparisons of like you know the. Uh, Batman's like you know cars and equipment throughout the years and like someone did a cost breakdown of how much it cost to be Batman when you know started in the 30s versus how much it cost to be Batman now and it's it's ridiculous like you could be Batman for like three grand in 1932 <laughs> yeah but you were making like three cents an hour oh, yeah. right yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of money <laughs> I think I read somewhere too that like somebody did a breakdown like in order for a real person to know and be proficient in as many martial arts as Batman is supposedly proficient in you would have to train for like more more years than a human can live or something ridiculous <laughs> like that something very because of course because you know, it's a fucking comic book you can learn right. martial art well how old did, was it 76 76 years old there you go he 76 is. years of training Batman there you go <laughs> by now he had a I don't know just keep it going. Sheesh. You know, going back to the Batmobiles, I'd have to say, after thinking about it, Michael Keaton's. Ooh. It just looks mm-hmm. badass. You can't yeah. get around how awesome it looks with those fins, how low it hugs to the the yeah. ground. Mm-hmm. The tumbler's cool, but it's just not practical. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know? I don't know. Not for me. I mean, when I first saw it, I was like, really? It's a. <laughs> Jumping bat? that thing over intersections <laughs> to get to work. Oh my god! You know the the animated series Batmobile always bugged me because though it was a pretty sleek looking car, it was long. Yeah, I'm like how does this dude get around <laughs> corners and up alleys and stuff? It's crazy. Like Mac, Michael Keaton did, just a grappling hook around the telephone poles <laughs> and swing it around the corner. Right. I would use a grappling hook on my car even if I wasn't involved in a car chase. <laughs> oh yeah, I'd just do it to show off. They did that on MythBusters once. They rigged that up in a car to see if it would actually work. It was like oh, a really? Movie Busters episode, mm-hmm. and they had to. Oh, like, I've seen that one. Yeah, they had they to like had tear to. the car down and like weld this thing to the frame because mounting it anywhere else just, just tore the car. To shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they tried to do this that um, the bat grappling hook thing, like the one armed. Oh yeah, they lift. did. Yeah, that didn't work. All their at all. arms like broke or something. <laughs> well, yeah, it, got, it, t- it started to lift him up, but as he got higher. The cable like snapped. Yeah. yeah, thank God he had that safety thing on. Yeah, because I think you're right. I think he still got like really hurt. Like he, I don't remember what happened. Maybe the cord came back and hit him. But I think he got hit in the face with the cable when it broke. <laughs> well, like if any that, of them deserve to be hit in like the face. Deal, yeah. but, you know, there's enough tension on that sucker. That, there's a lot of force there. I don't know. Yeah. Getting, I don't know. I don't know, Garth. The phrase "I got hit in the face by a cable" sounds like a pretty big deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but see, even if he had gotten that thing to work, the practicality of it, I mean, he had, like, what was it? Little, like, air tanks on a belt, like, all around his, like, he had a whole contraption on his belt and up his back, going up his arm with all these Oh, the myth buster, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to uh, make this thing work. And it wasn't even, like, grapple. They had to go up and attach it. They were just seeing if he could lift. Yeah. But yeah. Stupid real life. They did the two parts. <laughs> did they do that in two parts? 
I think they did it in two parts. They did they did a part to see if they could uh, uh, build a device that would shoot a grappling hook and have it secure and and get that part to work. And then they built another device to see if they if they could you know winch up right you know in a, in a portable way. And they're like, yeah, technically you can make both, but boy, it's it, it it's not nearly as effective or as cool as it is in the movies. Right. Must have been uh, sweeps or something yeah. for Mythbusters. <laughs> we need ratings. Let's do some kind Batman. of movie. Everyone one. loves Batman. Do that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time we probably move on. We're running out of time, but man, I every time we cut this thing off at like twenty four or twenty five minutes, I'm always like wanting to just keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> we could keep going forever. But I'd be editing forever then too. You know? <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let's just turn over and uh, talk about some comics. Sounds good. Who would like to go first this week? Are we doing current comics or just We're doing anything, anything. you want. Anything I want. Oh, man. New, old, whatever. Whew. I'll go first while, while everyone's thinking. Okay. Okay. So I got from my shameless plug, Comic Bento Box, <laughs> a couple months ago. <laughs> from, <laughs> from Valiant Comics, uh, book trade paperback called Divinity. And this is the first Valiant that I have ever read. And it's not going to deter me from getting out of the ones because it's a different book, type of book. Uh, the story's about a guy named Abram Aaron, a- Abram Adams. Um, he's a, what's it called when you don't have any, when your parents give you, he's an orphan. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so he's an orphan. Uh, he ended up getting picked up by a couple. Um, later on, they ended up dying. So the state, this takes place in Russia in the Cold War before. Ooh. Yeah. The state ends up picking up and, you know, giving him schooling and stuff everywhere. He excelled at everything. So they gave him the best of everything. Um, turns out that Russia wanted to do beat America to space. We were going to the moon. They wanted to go farther to the edge mm. of the galaxy, pretty much as far as they could. Okay. So they trained him to take this 30-year trip into outer space. No one was going to know about it. The government didn't know about it. Nobody, nothing. And he ends up going out to space, and he ends up later in the book coming back. You find out that he has come back, and he's got all these crazy powers that he can just grant people wishes and stuff like that. A lot of people think he's really? a god. Yeah. I love that, uh, the concept. They, they think they touched on it in that, what was the Matthew McConaughey, Interstellar? Yeah. That was a great movie. Mm-hmm. But like, really, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. So I, I, I really liked Interstellar. I, I, I liked, I, I like movies with time travel where the time travel like yes. works, you know, where it's not like, oh, well, we just rewrote that. Never mind. Paradox? What was that? Yeah. yeah, but Back <laughs> to the Future was so fun. Oh, it was, right. I mean, like, it can be. <laughs> Back to the Future was, you know, was very, like, it, it was intentionally campy. It wasn't, yeah. you know, trying to take it. It wasn't even trying to take itself seriously. <laughs> um, and anyone who takes Back to the Future seriously really needs to, like, I don't know. <laughs> they probably don't cry at the end of Heart of Ice. They probably they don't. Probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. It was pretty quick. I, I only got about halfway through it. Sounds um, good. What's that? I, I can talk about a comic that I was reading. Um, I'm a little behind on it because the comic book shop that I used to go to is way back in the city, and I live out in the suburbs now with my wife and kids, so I don't get to go to my comic book shop back in the city as much as often as I'd like. But I was reading um, Gail Simone's uh, Red Sonia series, and never even heard of that. Oh, you Red haven't Sonia? heard. Gail Simone took on, um, was writing so. uh, Red Sonia for a little while. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard. Should have I? The character. Uh, Red Sonia. Refresh out with Conan. 
I like Conan. She's a redhead barbarian yeah. chick in like the chainmail bikini. I never got into Conan. I know. No. no. <laughs> All right. Well, Red Sonia is um a barbar a redhead barbarian badass who hangs out in a little chainmail bikini. See, I already um, like her. I already yeah, like. Right? Her. <laughs> she but, can beat Xena. Uh, she was a lot of representations of Red Sonia, and Gail Simone said this on her Twitter feed, was, uh, featured uh, Red Sonia looking like a cat with her butt up in the air, so to speak. That kind of sexualized barbarian. Ooh. You know, that that whole thing. I like well, her even Simone, more. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gail Simone took the reins, uh, and I never got into Red Sonia either, um, but I was intrigued, like, oh, I love Gail Simone's work. I was introduced to her work when she was writing uh, The Atom, when Ryan Choi took over from Ray Palmer as The Atom. And that was a funny fucking series. That was an amazing, <laughs> amazingly funny book. And I was laughing my head off monthly when she was writing The Atom. Um, so she was always on my radar. So I heard that she was taking over Red Sonia. I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting take on what I always perceived as a overly male fantasy character. And it was incredible, absolutely incredible. She turned Red Sonia into like a barbarian in the best possible way. I mean, one, she was brutal in, in, this, in, a, in a merciless world. She, you know, beat the shit out of her enemies, skewered, skewered the bad guys, beat them up, but she also forgot to bathe all the time, so she stunk. Oh, so she was, she's not quite as sexy as she once was. She, well, she is sexy, but... She's dirty. But she's a barbarian. <laughs> I like them hot and dirty. You're sexy in a dirty kind of she way. She wants to get laid all the time because she's like, oh, God, I've been fighting all the time. I need to get my fucking rocks off. You, come here. But no one wants to go near her because she's fucking scary. And like, no, see what? One, you stink. Two, you're covered in blood. Three, get away from me. You're, you're freaking me out. There was a, oh, man, there was my favorite story from her run on Red Sonia was when uh, Red Sonia was tasked to find the six greatest artisans in the world for this uh, emperor's party. Okay. And Red Sonia agreed to do it because it's this Egypt Egyptian sort of character, uh, pharaoh sort of character. And he said, if you do this for me, I will free all of my slaves upon my death. And of course she was like, yeah, yeah okay, I'll do this crazy fucking thing. I'll find the six artisans to attend your your going away party because you're going to die soon. And all of the artisans were some of the more fascinating characters in a fantasy setting. Like Red Sonia found a gourmet chef who was hiding out with like some swamp people, right? And she could not grasp the idea of gourmet cooking. She just couldn't deal with it. And he couldn't deal with her not being able to grasp sauces. Put some salt on it. Exactly. <laughs> and he would get like mortified when she just she didn't like sip his soup and she just like gulped it down like what the I, i'm not doing a great a great job of describing it but gail simone's <laughs> gail simone writing red sonia is probably one of my favorite books uh to come out in a long long time i really recommend her entire run i think it just came to an end and i think all i think it was three storylines that she did Three or four. Like, they must all be collected in trades by now, uh, but highly, highly recommended. Great take on the character, great cast of characters, and just a, I would say, a definitive version of uh, the she-devil with a sword. You got me intrigued. I'm hanging on your every word. <laughs> Who's the publisher on it? Uh, Dynamite. Ah. Oh, they have good stuff. Yeah. I like Dynamite. Very cool. Hardcore. 
barbarian girl. Oh, yeah. Dirty, sexy girl. (laughs) (laughs) More dirty than anything. (laughs) (laughs) She's the kind of girl you don't take home to mom. No. Good thing it's not a scratch and sniff book. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get in trouble with that one. (laughs) All right. What about you, Garth? I I picked up a book recently that I haven't actually been able to, I haven't had time to sit down and read yet. Uh, It's called Low. The first volume is uh, entitled The Delirium of Hope. It's an image book. It's done by uh, Rick Remender and Greg uh, Tocini, I believe is how it's pronounced. And they were the creative team behind a comic that I really, really enjoyed called uh, The Last Days of American Crime. Uh, which was a really fascinating near-future sci-fi kind of story. Uh, um, it's like 2030, 2040-something or other, like pretty near-future. And the U.S. government is about to implement a device of some kind that sends out a, a signal that will prevent people from consciously committing unlawful acts. If they know it's against the law, they won't be able to do it once the device is turned on. Some very, like, hand-wavy sci-fi there. But uh, the, the, the upshot of this is that life in the United States has turned into just one giant hellhole because no one gives a damn anymore. They're like, well, we if we're going to do something that we shouldn't be doing, we got to do it now because soon we won't be able to. Um, the story follows this guy who is trying to pull off the biggest bank heist possible right before like this all happens because they're they're changing over apparently they're they're actually using like the 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 device that prevents people from committing crime to cover up the fact that they're changing over all the currency to like i think they're finally doing away with like paper money it's all digital now and it's a totally new system and like i'm explaining this badly because it's a little bit politicky (laughs) but uh um, and like made up politicky too right like none of this is something people are actually advocating or trying or anything like that right Right. it's it's total fiction but it, it it one beautifully drawn like all the pages are these gorgeous hand painted like uh uh watercolors with just some of the most incredible uses of color i've ever seen like and and some of the greatest use of, of white space like it, it beautiful beautiful artwork and i'm a sucker for for a well-drawn comic it's it, it's just a thing if it's pretty even if it's not well written I'll, I'll read it and i'll be like oh no I, I, I appreciate that you know but it was also just a really fascinating like kind of classic sci-fi where they take a, a very ridiculous kind of you know, on the face of it, very, like, outlandish principle and make it, like, the new law of the land in the future um, and kind of dissect what that would mean for, you know, like, society and how it would, it would change how people behave and act and what it would mean, what it means for us as people and human beings. So I'm looking forward to, to, to this other book of theirs, Low, as soon as I can get the time to read it. <laughs> I think I've got that one. I think it starts with like uh, I'm going to butcher this one, but uh, <laughs> I think humanity or something is like living underwater and like these big bubbles. Yeah, looking... yeah, no, it's yeah, like the, the the sun has has started to do its expansion thing and like take over the solar system. So like the Earth is all irradiated and shit now. So people are living under the oceans. That's the same same book you're thinking of. Uh, okay. Um, I just haven't gotten around to reading it yet, um, but I am very much looking forward to it. You'll enjoy it. From what I remember, it was a really, really good book. I thought it sounded familiar. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was also very busy this weekend, so I didn't uh, have time to sit down and read the book I wanted to read. So I'll just uh, 
I guess, chime in with where I'm at with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles book uh, running on IDW right now. Huge fan of the Turtles, and I'm a huge fan of that series. Issue 49 came out last month, and this coming Wednesday, which will have already passed by the time anyone listens to this, was uh, issue 50 coming out. And I have yet to see, I thought I heard that issue 50 was going to be the last in the run, and the way the story is kind of building up, it kind of looks that way, but I feel like I saw an issue 51 on my poll, but... Either way, what's happened in uh, the last issue, uh, issue 49, was, you know, as you can imagine through the whole series, you know, the Splinter and the Turtles and Shredder and his Foot Clan, you know, they have their their scuffles together, but ultimately it ends up with them back at their lairs planning their next attack, yada yada. There's a lot more mm-hmm. going on than just that, but... Uh, <laughs> fight, go home, fight, go home. But that's what you need to uh, know for this for this comic. It gets to the point where... Splinter is just, you know, I'm sick of this. This has to end. I challenge uh, the Shredder, Orokosaki, to this. Some I don't remember what they called it, but it was some kind of a uh, like a fight to the death where you can choose four people to stand with you. Each side does. And as those four you know warriors battle each other, whoever's left standing gets to stand next to their master in the final battle. And uh, no matter what happens, the master cannot interfere with what's going on in that fight. And both sides have agreed to play by the rules so far. But uh, the way issue 49 ended was obviously the four turtles being uh, Splinter's soldiers he's sending into battle. And then Shredder sending in first Rocksteady and Bebop. Now, quick side note, Rocksteady and Bebop in this comic series aren't the Bebop and Rocksteady from the <laughs> old cartoon where you, you know, they're... So they're competent? Uh, more so than, yes. We'll yes. Toidles. Well, they, they caved in Donatello's shell and he's yeah. about dead, so <laughs> I'd say they're pretty oh. efficient. <laughs> but yeah, but, um, you know, they're the size you would expect a mutated rhino and warthog to be. They tower over the turtles and the turtles are really no match for them on their own. So those are two of his pawns, and then uh, I don't remember the name of the other two mutants he has, a great big uh, falcon and some hammerhead shark, but they all go at it. The turtles get their asses handed to them, so issue 50 is going to open with Splinter going up by himself against uh, Shredder and all four of his pawns. So I've been just chomping at the bit (laughs) waiting to see what happens because... The series has surprised me so far. They they keep doing things I don't expect. So I wouldn't put it past anyone to have a tragic ending. It's happened before with the turtles. I think when they were on either the Image label or Mirage, they they actually killed off Splinter mm. at one point. But I remember that from years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. So we'll see. I'm really excited. Turtles number 50 should be out by the time you're hearing this. So go get it. All right, I think that'll do it for talking about comics, unless anyone else has anything else to say. No, I'm good. And with that, let's just move right into... Real World Heroes! Jack, who do we have this week? We have four-year-old Abby from Ferndale, Washington. Well, four years old? At the time she was four. This happened in June of 2014. <laughs> She's 37. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, she foiled... A robbery plot by her 17-year-old babysitter. I guess uh, her babysitter uh, planned a false home invasion in order to steal things from the house. Uh, Her accomplices were her 16-year-old boyfriend and some 18-year-old kid. Okay. When the cops arrived to the apartment, the babysitter told the police that two armed black men had entered the residence and stole a bunch of stuff like video game systems, laptops, 
iPod, and a piggy bank. Oh my! They took the piggy bank. Yeah. Christ. How heartless can you be? <laughs> I guess uh, some investigators also said the babysitter even tried pinning the crime on a, a black neighbor who was. They ended up taking him in for questioning about it. Serious. God. But when the cops spoke to little Abby, she told him that the robbers were white and that they had told her to go outside while they steal all the stuff. And it turned out not too long later that the uh, the suspects admitted to the crime and her accomplices, her and her accomplices, were all arrested. The babysitter, wow, friend and stuff. That's incredible. I, when you said four-year-old, I was expecting some, like, Home Alone hijinks, like <laughs> paint cans coming down the stairs to knock him out, but still, wow. And the babysitter ended up facing charges of second-degree perjury, conspiring to commit robbery, and conspiring to commit burglary. Wow. Yeah. And the other two, they got second-degree robbery, theft, and burglary. They got, they got robbery and burglary? Yeah. Wow. Didn't know there were two separate things. Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah, robbed. I thought you were burgled. <laughs> I have no idea. You threaten, it's a robbery. If you don't threaten, it's just burglary. Hmm. I know, it's thanks to Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Leave it to Ant-Man to always show the way. <laughs> that story freaks me out because uh, we got I got a little guy myself. He's 10 months old today. We don't have, a, and my wife and I were just this weekend talking about, like, I wonder if we'll ever have to get a babysitter. Like, where would we look for a babysitter for him? I wonder. Yeah. They could now conspire to steal all our shit. Yeah. <laughs> Blame well, it on my black next door neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> the story's a little hitting too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. What's... You get background checks on babysitters these days. Yeah, oh there's an app for that, I think, now. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would still be leery. Oh yeah. Personally, I don't even have kids, and thinking about it, like I'm not leaving my unborn, unknown, un you know, <laughs> nothing child with that person. But at the same time, oh, it's nice to get out of the house. You're right. <laughs> I tell <Yeah>. you, <laughs> we left them with our my mother-in-law this weekend, just so my wife and I could just have like a date night, just the two of us. And we're like, oh fuck, this is nice. I see why people do this babysitter shit. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this is worth it. <laughs> You're heading toward the terrible twos. You just wait. Well, we still got we still got two years. Well, a year and a half. Oh, it'll fly by. I guarantee. Oh, tell me about. I don't it. even I have the... kids. What the hell am I talking yeah, about? Like, no, like I have experience or anything. <laughs> no, but it's true. I know man. how fast two years flies by. Is what I know. Well, I can tell you, ten months has just flown the fuck by. So I don't know what last <laughs> what happened to ten, last ten months. But next time, next thing I know, I blinked, and it's going to be October this week. So uh, yeah, there you go. Me. Uh, come back, Summer. <laughs> anyway, was there anything else on that, Jack? Yep. Abby was happy to have all her stuff back, and she was quoted saying, Wednesday was the worst day of my life, because that happened on a Wednesday. Aw. And she said, the police got it back because of me being the superhero. <laughs> well, and for that, little Abby, you have found a spot on our wall of justice. In the hall of heroes. So she is a hero now. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. she's on our wall. Yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what makes the hero nowadays. Her superpower was telling the truth. I love oh, that. Oh, listen to that. <laughs> boy, oh boy, that needs to be written down. <laughs> Her superpower was telling the truth. Yeah, there you go. There's your next uh, story. Get writing. <laughs> All right, and with that, let's just turn our attention over to Garth and Michael and talk about star power. Thanks again for being with us, guys. My our pleasure. Thank you for having us. So. 
tell us and uh, the listeners who aren't familiar with Star Power. You know, where does Star Power begin? It looks you guys have been doing this for some time. It looks like you've had your website up for some time. When did you begin? We began about two years ago. Um, well, the site launched about two years ago. I'd been working on a previous webcomic series called Dominic Deegan Oracle for Hire. I worked on it for 11 years, and uh, it ended on a Friday. And that Monday, Star Power launched. Wow. I think it was, think it was June, either late May or it's early May. June of 2013. And... Um, We've Star Power's been going for about about two years now. Um, we are both webcomic, I would say, veterans. Garth had been doing two previous webcomics, uh, Comedity and Finders Keepers. One was a slice of life kind of uh, absurd comedy thing. <laughs> absurd is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> I say absurd, absurd as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Finders Keepers was his other one. That was a very urban fantasy um, tale. It, it was basically a love note to Neil Gaiman. Uh, <laughs> I'm being honest about it. Um, <laughs> I should point out that I was not doing both of these at the same time. Uh, they, 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 I, I ended one and I started doing the other one. I, I, I don't have it in me to do two comics at once. Don't say he's a busy man. <laughs> but... Um, so yeah, uh, I'd, ended it, I'd ended my series, Garth had brought his to an end, and uh, we were both looking for something else to do, um, and we had been talking about doing a, a project together for some time, and uh, after a great many revisions, uh, ideas that uh, we thought were going to work, but didn't have the staying power we thought they were going to have, uh, Star Power was the finished product, and we've been uh, working pretty steadily on it for the past two years and uh, we're kickstarting our uh, our second book uh, that collects the second storyline that we'd put up online uh, The Search for Black Hole Bill it's been hugely successful I mean we are two weeks in we're starting our second week of the kickstarter and we blew past our initial goal and we are closing in on our second stretch goal to make the book, uh, to add another eight pages of content to the book. We're very, very, very proud of it. We're very humbled by uh, the support of our fans. As you should uh, be. Yeah. 490 backers so far with 22 days left. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It. Yeah. I forgot. Was the question what Star Power about, or was well, it that was going to be my next question. I mean, can you tell the listeners who aren't familiar with Star Power and myself? I haven't got a chance to sit and thoroughly read it yet, but what I have seen is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but yeah, t- tell us what it's all about. Uh, um, so Star Power uh, follows uh, a young astronomer in the far future uh, named Danica. Um, and uh, one night while gazing at a rather unremarkable star um, in her off hours because uh, uh, she, she can't put her astronomy down. She's a bit of a workaholic that way. She becomes in- infused with uh, an ancient cosmic energy uh, and becomes the last of the star-powered sentinels, the peacekeepers of the fallen and forgotten galactic empire. To complicate matters, uh, it turns out Danica is now the last of the star-powered sentinels, and the the ancient nem- enemies uh, of the Empire that uh, were responsible for its downfall and the obliteration of uh, the star-powered sentinels have returned and are starting to threaten the edges of uh, uh, Danica's home, the Millennium Federation. Uh, what will 
be revealed to be the last bastion of civilization in a galaxy largely fallen to barbarism and chaos. That sounds know? awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we took, we, we we took everything. For, we, oh, sorry, Garth. No, no. So we, we were going for a, a very, very classic superhero kind of story, you know, where, where we wanted to, there's more, uh, how do you phrase the movie? It's a, a Oh, more, more, uh, more action than violence and more adventure than angst. That's a new one. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> awesome. Garth didn't initially want to do a superhero book. I had to really convince him to do it. And what I think, and that, and the result kind of speaks to how well he and I collaborate together as, as creators. I wanted a traditional superhero book. I wanted the masks, the capes, right. symbols on the chests, League of This, Justice Society of That. I wanted the whole thing. <laughs> Garth didn't want that. Garth right. was like, I don't want to do that. I don't like the superhero community, the idea of the superhero community. I think things just get out of hand when there's a superhero, when there's just a bunch of superheroes all fighting each other and like civilians are just cannon fodder. Right. It's kind of the way. Yeah. So the way to the compromise that I suggested was something that surprised me that I was even suggesting. I'd said, all right, well, what if star power is the only superhero in the entire setting? And that's what caught him. He was like, oh, she's the only one. Okay, I'm listening. And from there, it, it was an idea that I'd never even considered. And it surprised me to, to, to suggest that. And it, immediately I was challenging myself in that sort of like, okay, this is a totally different idea now, but one that I'm interested in. I don't have to write the League of Super whatever. I don't have to explain everybody's fucking origins. I, I just have to the one. <laughs> Right. But, we keep, but with a sci, it's a, and since it's like a sci-fi superhero, it's, it's a, mm, sorry, since it's a sci-fi setting, you still get a lot of that comic book wonder because there's just a bunch of weird-looking creatures everywhere. Right. You know, we have. I mean, it's called the Millennium Federation because it comprises a thousand home worlds of a thousand different races. I think Garth and I have touched on what twelve races. <laughs> And we're still we're already overwhelmed. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> so many aliens. I know. Yeah, you're creating a world. We have a whole galaxy to do. Yeah. So, uh, so star power started off. And we, 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 can, we can be very big and still get all that, you know, awe and excitement and wonder that, you know, comes from like a lot of the, the, the old fashioned kind of superhero kind of stuff where it's like, you know, uh, you know, leaping tall buildings in a single bound kind of right thing. but without you know automatically falling into a lot of the, the the tropes of that genre you know because there's only the one that's all i cannot wait to dig into this you guys got oh, me you. so very intrigued oh thank you it's already it's already beautiful to look at and now the story to go with it and especially the title for volume two the search for black hole bill i have got myself a little soft spot for westerns and i love space stories already so what a natural marriage that is for me we don't want to give you anything away uh, on black hole bill but we very we're very pleased with the reaction that black hole bill got he, um the ca- way the character turned out surprised a lot of people and surprised them in a sort of way that, well, we're glad we got him. 
I will say that. Like, there's sometimes when you're writing something, you kind of hope you get people. Like, they're expecting one thing, and then you kind of... It's weird when, like, some people are expect When some readers are expecting one thing from a character, but then you pull a, pull a fast one, not because you're doing it just to do it, but because, like, that was your plan from the start. Like, okay, well, you guys see the space cowboy. He's at odds with the superhero at first. Right. Um, and uh, immediately we introduced Black Hole Bill back in Volume One, Star Power, and the Ninth Wormhole, uh, and he was at odds with our with our hero. And uh, spoiler, she beats him. Oh, and he's, you're kidding me! I, I was going to read that. <laughs> I can't read it now. Volume Two, he escapes, and she's looking for him. So that's the search for Black Hole Bill. Um, but as soon as they, as soon as people saw this, the scruffy mercenary bounty hunter space cowboy. They had very romantic notions about him. They had very, like, oh, well, they're going to end up together. Oh, okay. I see oh, why this is see, going. I didn't think that. That's what everybody thought. <laughs> I had my own then, romantic notions. Well, <laughs> but then we did something that uh, really solidified him as a villain in volume two. And it was, it was, a, it was an idea that hurt me to think about it. I was like, ooh, that's cold. And I pitched it to Garth, uh, and he was like, oh, dude, I don't want to draw that. I'm like, I know you don't. That's why we have to do it, because it's bad. (laughs) We are upset about this. So imagine how it's going to translate. When that page dropped online, oh, man, did we hear back from people like, oh, okay, I did like Black Hole Bill. Now I don't. He's awful. I hope she gets him. And, like... Oh, it felt so good to do that. It felt so good to for have to have everybody on board with like the fast one. Like, right, uh, right. I want to read this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought just from looking at the Kickstarter with Black Hole Bill that he might be like a sidekick that comes into it, but then finding out that he's a bad guy that it piqued my interest even more. He w- he was a pretty fun bad guy to write, and I'm pretty sure Garth enjoyed enjoyed t- there, you you enjoyed your time with Bill. I think. Oh yeah, no, no. Bill, Bill's a Bill's a fantastic character. He's a horrible human being. He's a fantastic. Character. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you know when I was on your guys' website looking around. Like I said, I haven't got a chance to read into it yet, but I could tell that, you know, this was a, a fun story, but a it had a serious tones to it. And seeing, uh, you know, Black Hole Bill and the face he was making in the one shot you see on the, I think it was on the Kickstarter, maybe, mm. him holding up his guns. It, I don't know. There was something in me you said this is going to be as fun as it is serious and not too serious. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're, 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 you're. You're describing exactly what we are going for with Star Power. You know, yeah. we want to hit some of the serious stuff. We want people to worry about the fate of, of our characters. But still um, have fun. But at the same, at the same time, time, still have yeah. some fun, yeah. Because it's still a comic book. It's still a superpowers. It's still a space adventure. And I feel like some people so often forget that the adventure aspect of superheroes, you right. know, in mm-hmm. terms of trying to be the next... Dark Knight Returns or the next Watchmen, while very well-written stories, I feel like so many people want to be that next gritty, I'm going to change the way people look at superheroes sort yeah. of writer. But, like, where, like, revel in the adventure, for God's sakes. I mean, yeah. don't, I mean, try and remember the wonder when you first saw someone leap from a single bound or you cried at the end of Heart of Ice or, like, any of that sort of more wondrous stuff. Like, that's what we're going for with Star Power. And 
the fact that you seem to come across that just from look glancing at it uh, is is a huge compliment to us. So thank you. Um, I guess we're doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say so. And your Kickstarter is another testament to that. Yeah. I mean, your your readers know you're doing something right too. They are so great to us. They are absolutely amazing to us. Yes, they are. So you, now you were saying you're uh, well on your way to hitting your second stretch goal. Uh, what uh, what does that entail? And then what are you, some of the next stretch goals we're looking at? Our first stretch goal was to add uh, extra content um, to, to the book. We were originally, uh, you know, the, the base goal of, of the Kickstarter was to print uh, a 144-page book. Um, our first stretch goal expanded that to 152 pages. So we're going to be adding... Um, if we don't raise a single more dime before the end of this, which I, I can't even believe that that would, that would happen. But <laughs> if, <laughs> on the outside there, if that were to happen, we would be adding uh, um, eight other pages uh, of, of content where we go in and we talk about uh, um, the Supernova Dragon Lords, one of the, uh, the space biker gangs that uh, Danica encounters in the comic. Our second stretch goal is going to um, add eight further pages, bringing us to a 160-page book, which is a really nice, solid, you know, amount of content right there. Right. Uh, our third stretch goal, if if we hit it, we're going to overhaul the Star Power website. Uh, oh, it, sweet. It, we, we've had it for since since we started two years ago, and it, it's. It's getting to need a little bit of an overhaul, uh, and uh, so we're going to, going to provide a, a, a faster, sleeker reading experience for, for all of our readers, regardless of whether they read, catch us through Kickstarter only, or if they, they, they read us uh, daily online, or if they pop in every once in a while to, to see what's happened. And then we have a mystery stretch goal that... Oh. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, um, that uh, we're not quite ready to reveal just yet, uh, but we will uh, as uh, uh, the campaign continues. Right. Uh, so that's something you're just going to have to stay tuned for. <laughs> I think we'll. I think we'll find out what it is. Yeah. At the rate you guys we hope are going. So. We certainly hope so. And thank you for the vote of confidence. Oh well, we're not we're not taking a leap of faith here. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. So do you guys uh, get out to any cons or anything with Star Power? Do you promote in the con circuit? Oh, oh very absolutely. much so. Do you? Yeah, yeah. So, that's how uh, Garth, Garth and I met. Oh, Garth and yeah. I met many years ago. I think, was it 2004, 2005? I think it was 2005. Something like that. We were both at Kineticon in Hartford, Connecticut. And I was he was doing Comedity at the time. I was doing Dominic Digging and Oracle for Hire. And we just had tables that were happened to be near each other. And we struck up a conversation. We became friends. Uh, we stayed in touch online. We would see each other at various conventions up and down the East Coast. And um, next thing you know, we're working on a comic together. <laughs> so now we share a table. And next thing uh, you know, you have people throwing us thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we do a ton of conventions. Um, I, we're pretty much done with conventions for this year. The last, the next thing we're doing, we're going to be going down to Austin, Texas, to the Web Comics Rampage. It's, a, it's something that Dragon's Lair. It's a comic book shop down there. Um, kind of a comic book shop. Uh, they sell role-playing games and board games and general sort of nerd hobby shop sort of a, a okay. place. Um, they, they host a bunch of web comicers every year. This is their seventh year doing it. Wow. And host them in their store. There's some, pat, there's some live draw sessions. We sit there and meet people. We sell some merchandise. And then we go home. 
Um, I've heard about it in the past. This is our first year being invited. Um, and we're pretty excited about it. We're lined up to do, I believe we're doing OhioCon in January. Uh, yeah. Then I, I think we're set for that. And I think we're going to be doing KatsuCon in February. Uh, past that, um, it's still a little early for a lot of cons to be planning for sure. spring of 2016. It's only October of 2015 right now. <laughs> sure, understandable. <laughs> we'll definitely be back at Kineticon in the summer, um, uh, back in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, past that, you know, wherever we end up, we'll end up. We were just at DragonCon a few weeks ago. What a what a what a weekend that was! Oh my god. <laughs> was the DragonCon a good or a bad experience? Oh, so good. Oh, great show. So DragonCon has always been very very good for us. It's only our second year doing it. Is yeah, it is only our second year, but still, they both been really good years. <laughs> <laughs> really great staff, incredible attendees. Um, I mean, for a show that size. Sure. That takes over part of Atlanta. It has like a freaking parade. It's incredibly well run, incredibly smoothly, smoothly handled. I mean, if there's problems, we never encountered any of them. Um, but I mean, from a from an exhibitor's standpoint, nothing but good things to say about Dragon Con and the people who go there and the people who run the show. Just a great, great time. It's worth every penny. Worth yeah. absolutely every penny. <laughs> Maybe, maybe Gandar can get uh, some press passes or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, guys, I really want to thank you for uh, being on the show with us. And when you're at OhioCon, shoot us an email because we're right here in Columbus. And I'm assuming that's where it's going to be. So we'll come out and see you. Yeah. Say hi. Oh, awesome. awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll let you know. Awesome. Please do. Well, congrats, guys. And uh, thanks again. No problem. Thank you for having us. This has been a really, really fun talk. Well, we'll have you back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> Jack, what do we have on the website? We have the show blog where you can find out about our guests uh, and see what they're going, what they're doing, where they're going. Uh, we got videos, trailers, movies, Candare Comic Book Store, and the Candare Comic Book. Oh, yeah. So I got to get, get cracking on the, this year's version of that. Man, that video's taking a bunch of time out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram at Can underscore Air. Don't forget to check out our YouTube page. Right now we have a few unboxing videos and the G.I. Joe PSAs on there. But as Jack was just uh, hinting at and we've been hint- hinting at the last three or four months, we're still mm-hmm. working on this video. Uh, first time doing stop motion, first time green screening. But, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. It, first time video production all together. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully it turns out uh, good enough for you guys to enjoy. But, we'll yeah, we'll be blasting that all over Twitter when that happens. Also, stay tuned after the episode uh, is finished playing out. We have the panel of Sean Astin and Graham McTavish from the uh, 2015 Comic Expo. Cincinnati Comic Expo. Damn, this is tongue-tying me right here. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the two of them did a Middle Earth panel. It's about an hour long. It was a lot of fun to sit through. And uh, I tell you, Sean Astin has some good stories to tell. He's also a good guy towards the end when you find out with the Q&A part. He stood up for everyone doing the questions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a a stand-up act, that guy right there. So, yeah, stick around at the end of the episode. Give it a listen. See what you think. But I think that's going to do it for this week. So until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. I'm Michael Taracciano. And I'm Garth Graham. Thanks for listening, everyone.
Barnett. And on behalf of the Cincinnati Comic Expo, it is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Graham McTavish and Mr. Sean Aston. just get 
you know, the three minutes that they need for that sequence. Well, and it only took 15 days, whereas on the movie it would have taken 40 days or something like that, you know, and you, and so they learned a lot. I don't know, did Well, yeah, I mean, it was, what I was surprised about, though, was um, the sort of ruthlessness of, of what Peter would do sometimes in terms of it wasn't exactly what he wanted. So a lot of work, a lot of work, you know, months of work, could just be got rid of like that. I remember particularly when we were doing the goblins, um, they originally had them as uh, animatronic heads so that they had servers inside them and people operated the remote control, people wore them. There were the whole goblin suits, which were the equivalent of wearing, I think, about four wetsuits at the same time. People were passing out, the guy in front of me just collapsed and all this sort of thing. And Peter came on set early on and uh, they were very proud of these wonderful things and they were absolutely amazing. And he just looked at them and said, no, no, it's not gonna work. So we need to do something different. And you could see the faces just like. But credit to them, they went off and they did it. And that was the extraordinary thing that you could get a, a set or a set of costumes or a, a weapon. And if it wasn't what he wanted, uh, he wasn't shy of saying so, and, uh, and they would go back. And so these people were working, you know, like just the prosthetics, they were working 24 hours a day. They were running those prosthetics 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two and a half years, pretty much, constantly creating. I, uh, <clears throat> one, I did, I've done several movies in New Zealand. The first one, I was 15 or 16. We went down to, to shoot some Whitewater Rapids. Uh, sequences for this little Kevin Bacon whitewater rafting movie that we did, the one without Meryl Streep. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing that characterized the New Zealand experience for me was the ingenuity, that they, there was nothing, there's just nothing they wouldn't try. You know, they were always, they were very clever. They would, they would do this, they would do that, and if it didn't work. And they didn't, it didn't matter where the good idea came from. I remember one day we were doing a scene where some characters, it might have been in, uh, might have been in, in the hall that we go running down before we get to the bridge of Casadum. I can't remember what that hall is, but anyhow, the cave, it's in the caves, the, the, the dwarf caves. So they had set up, and this is sort of the thing in Hollywood, it used to be before digital came in and before all the great new pieces of technology, you know, Steven Spielberg did an 80-foot dolly track in color purple, and that was, in town, that was a kind of, for a period of time, sort of a record that people would note. And um, this director, and because it takes a long time to set it up, it takes forever to shoot it, it's expensive, you know, and, and there's other ways to accomplish it, and it's, it's a little bit, you know, a lot of times it can be self-indulgent to do that. Well, Peter was taking his place in that, you know, chain, and uh, so he had set up this long dolly track. And the dolly, the way the dolly works is you have two handles, one on either side of the, the back of the dolly, and the dolly grip, you know, pushes. And there's, tr the track has little connectors that connect both sides of the, the rails together. So to run down with that, there's a risk that you'll trip when you're, when you're running on the middle. So you, they, they would get, guys on either side and hold the, you know, not that much wider, maybe, you know, eight inches wide, those little things, and they would start running with it. And they wanted it to go faster and faster and faster. And then they've got to be able to, you know, you have to have a certain amount of track to slow down. Uh, and you can, your hand, these guys' hands are sweaty. You know, the dolly is really heavy. 
So I remember at one point I said, you know, I have an idea. And people looked at me and said, why don't you put a bar across and, you know, tie it down on those things. And then you can kind of stand and run with it. And the grip looked at me and he went, huh. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea. So they, they put it there. And they probably did, they did so many takes on everything. They probably did 20 takes on it. And every time these big guys, now with their tennis shoes on instead of their boots, would go running down like bobsledders at the beginning of the bobsledding thing, I would just sit there like, oh, that was my idea. <laughs> Just a little, cut the tip of the iceberg on the Middle Earth thing about how um, when Peter Jackson took these beloved books, um, especially with The Hobbit, how he um, sort of uh, adulted it up a little bit to kind of make it more consistent. Kind of, the book sort of started out as sort of comedy, we're like, we're hobbits, and then later it's, I am the king under the mountain. That sort of led, and didn't it, to your big scene there at the end with Thor and Wynn. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I, yes, he was very keen to, um, because The Hobbit being essentially more of a children's book than The Lord of the Rings. Um, when I read The Lord of the Rings, I was 18, and I'd never read The Hobbit, and I didn't read The Hobbit after The Lord of the Rings, because I thought, well, that's a kid's book, so why would I be reading it when I was 18? But what Peter did was expand that book, as you know, to three movies, um, using these appendices that Tolkien subsequently wrote, because Tolkien himself was aware that um, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, because there was quite a big gap between the writing of them, that that world had changed in his mind, so that he wanted to bridge those worlds and wrote the appendices accordingly. And that's what Peter drew on to add uh, substance to the, to the three movies. But the adult content, yeah, with the, with the whole relationship with Thorin, it is, I mean, that's why I find, I do find it interesting, the, the slow deterioration of the dwarves' relationships as the, as the journey goes on, that they all start, and there's a lot of humor, and everything's kind of funny, and they're throwing food at each other. And by the end, you know, they're, they're mutinous and uh, wanting to kill each other in some, in some cases. So yeah, that was part of the journey that we all went on. Fortunately, as actors, we didn't get to that point where we wanted to kill each other. Yeah, there were a couple of days that it got a little close with some people, but you know, we got through it. Uh, but it was, um, yeah, it was. A, <laughs> oh no, you're not getting that out of me. Um, but yeah, we we uh, we went on a journey just like the, the characters went on a journey throughout the film. So by the end of it, we were a little different to when we began. My favorite part of the first one was the was the singing and throwing the plate stuff, that, because it was that that whimsy is what touched me, and I, and I, it was like he didn't abandon it in terms the the Middle Earth thematic, you know, just the whole aesthetic of them. It's meant to be a six, you know, and someone's going to do the Silmarillion, right? And somebody's got to try and put that one on, but. Uh, <laughs> But you see it? That, that woo represents $1 billion, so the studio will figure out how to, how to do it. But I mean, yeah, but, but all of a sudden in the, in the story, oh, I had that same feeling I had when I was, it like tapped into something from my childhood. Um, and I have kids, so I think, you know, when you read to them, you, you want to find some gateway into their imagination and, and have that experience. So that, that's, yeah. So I like that. I think as well that there is something essentially childlike about the dwarves to, to a lot of extent. I think that's 
part of their appeal to a lot of people is that they represent something childlike to to an audience and uh, we certainly tried to bring that out in back end when we were flinging food at each other for two weeks <laughs> trying me trying to ram a tomato up um, poor Stephen Hunter's nose <laughs> I thought it was his mouth I, I did I was behind him I was behind him and I was trying to get a tomato in his mouth and then I found myself accidentally ramming it up his nose. <laughs> and amazingly, I mean, he's such a trooper, he never even stopped, he didn't go, would you stop doing that? Uh, he just carried on. So, yeah, that was Stephen for you. And on that note, can I ask, um, you, you know, you, the, the relationship between Fro and Sam, right, you know, a lot of people have written a lot of stuff about it, how it's the central, She's asking an Sorry. art simple, no, 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 you know, related, and fan fiction over here is like, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't go in there. Don't you go there either. No. Um, no, but. It's um, a very powerful love relationship. There's no question about it. Absent sexuality. And some people have gone so far as to call Sam the hero of the story. Well, he's certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah. He's certainly one of the one of the nine. Well, for for you, having made these three long movies with long threads of character and development, do you go back now? Is there a moment? I mean, I know there must be lots of moments, and your goal is to make it always real. But is there a moment or a few that you can point to and say, "Yeah, that's Sam. I did that right there. That's Sam." Well, there's some obvious ones. Um, you know, 9-11 happened, and they were in the middle of putting together the two towers. Um, and uh, not even in the middle, they were sort of late in it. And uh, they went and found text in the book that they thought spoke to the global emotional you know, state of being. And they tried it in different characters. And they, they just, they didn't feel right. So then they gave it to Sam. And I remember sitting in our little house in Calabasas, California, and the fax machine rang. Now for those of you who don't know what a fax machine is, it's a device depicted in uh, early science fiction. And <laughs> C. Clark, I think, uh, was the first to, but anyhow, so it came, that scene came through. It's like in the great tales, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter, folk in those stories had lots of chances to turn it back when they get in. There's some good left in this world, Mr. Frodo, it's worth fighting for. You, you're like, oh my gosh, that, you know, I was, I think, I was in my bathrobe when I read it, <laughs> and I think I was jumping up and down and my bathroom was open. <laughs> but I was so, it was like a touchdown at the Super Bowl, and my wife, who, we've been married 24 years at that point, I guess it was you know, like 15 years or something, and she, whatever it was, and she was used to me doing, behaving strangely. <laughs> but I just remember holding up the curly paper, and like, look at this, look at this, look at this, and she read it, and we looked at each other, and you just thought, you know, anybody could read these words and it's earth-shatteringly perfect. So the fact that I got to be the one to do it 
who felt like, well, I just acknowledged what a blessing it was, what a gift, it's a gift. So that's one, and, and you know, stab, running Shagrat through with Sting was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, what does he say? Not if I stick you first, you know? And I, I felt like a hero. Um, there, were, there were things about, like, when we went to the Ralph Bakshi version. Oof. It's fun now. But I was terrified looking at it because I thought, oh my God, is this what Peter, like, am I supposed to be a, oh, no, no, it's brother. I mean, Tolkien writes it. They're always bursting in tears, left, right, and center, you know? And, and But to me, there's a nobility in it. But the way Ralph Bakshi did it, it was like, it was just buffoonery. And, and uh, so I... So at one point we were doing a fight sequence with the, uh, the cave troll, and I wanted to fight. And I remember Peter came in, and this was kind of tour de force performance for Peter. He, we had all the stunt guys, stunt coordinators, and the, all the stunties, and for both the humans that were you know cast, and then the doubles, the scale doubles, and their double stunt people. I mean, it was a proscenium affair, and he came in and he acted out the entire cave troll fight sequence in Balance 2. And uh, he was brilliant. He was great as a cave troll. You know, I, I thought he nailed Legolas. He, he said, and with every part that he would do, he would really change. I mean, and you, and then, but then he went to go shoot something else, and it was left up to us to work with the stunt guys. And we had the cameras there, and, and we were kind of like, un, we were unattended. And so, you know, we, I worked with the stunt guys, and they were happy that we were athletic and that we wanted to do it. And we, uh, Sam opened up a serious can of whoop-ass, man. It was great. And I remember running in with a clamshell for, to watch Peter, and I'm like, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And he had this look like, you know, I'm happy that Sean feels that he got to, you know, it's fun to watch somebody have fun. And maybe there's a little something more there than, than I would have originally, you know, I would have had Sam in the comedy box. So like in those kind of moments, I felt like I was a pretty good steward for the, the kind of what, what Sam was supposed to be with his feet firm in the ground and, and strong. And now, judging by the enormous number of people here, I'm positive there are people who have questions. So come and please line up at the microphone in front. And um, when it gets to you, be sure to speak right into that microphone because you won't be heard otherwise. And um, come ask some questions for our guys. Scary to work in the, in the movie with Gollum. 
wants to know if Gollum was scary. He was a stinker and a villain, but I was never scared of him. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, I'm just wondering for both of you, um, what was, like, you can choose, like, the best part or the most annoying part about the movie Sierra? Uh, well, um, the best part was the barrels. Um, that was like a fairground ride. They, uh, I mean, we did we did this part of it in the Polaris River, which is in the north of the South Island. They, in typical, I'm sure this resonates with you, Sean, um, typical Peter Jackson fashion. Um, we fully expected um, our stunt doubles to be doing the actual pulling themselves down the river. And he led us to this promontory overlooking the river and said, I can bring around the, uh, the stunting. And, um, and the stunt guy comes around the corner paddling in a barrel, wearing a wetsuit and a crash helmet. Right? And I'm like, okay. And he executes a perfect sort of scuba exit into the water, climbs up on the beach, boom. And we're like, very impressive, Peter, that's fantastic. And he says, so, shall we shoot it? And that, with that, we are led like lambs to the proverbial slaughter <laughs> down to this little area that they'd concealed from us. And we were just put into barrels, in Stephen Hunter's case, quite literally like a cork. I mean, he was rammed into it. They pulled away the safety rope, and we were on our own. And he just, he just rolled the cameras, and we did that over and over again. Richard Armitage nearly drowned. Uh, William Kircher and John Callum breached the safety rope, and they were floating down towards the ocean and had to be rescued. Uh, so there was all that good. But despite that, all of that sequence was my favorite. The, the worst was probably, um, well, yeah, there's a few uncomfortable moments. Uh, but um, having 400 pounds of fish poured on my head uh, in a barrel was, was pretty, yeah, it was just disgusting. I can imagine. It, it just stank. We all stank. Everything stank. The, the soundstage stank for days. Everything. I mean, I can still almost smell it now. It was, it was bad. So that was, that was a low point. Want to go for sushi? <laughs> Um, well, the high, the high point, I was trying to explain to somebody at the table today when they ask what your favorite movie is that you've done, that I give a different answer every time because they, like, you can't choose really, it's not, it's not every, every movie means something different to you. But a lot of times, the way I think about movies is I'm not thinking about the, the ex how it turned out or the experience of the movie when you're watching it. I'm thinking, my child was born when we were filming that, you know, or my, you know, I was the first time I was old enough to drive myself to the set. You know what I mean? I, the, the, those kind of things are like the first things that pop into my head. So with that, you know, my wife of 24 years, Christine, and our daughter, Allie, who just started college. Raise your hand if that made you feel older. <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> So uh, she was two when she went down there, and five when we finished, and seven by the time the third one premiered. Um, having them there the whole time, every day, they could come down to the set if they wanted to every day, they were welcome to. They ended up, having, you know, Allie went to school with Peter's kids, and they, they got up to their own kinds of things, and, but it, 
I felt, I felt like a man. I felt like a man who was giving an experience to his family that was unique, that was extraordinary, that was life-changing and totally memorable. So whenever I was going through my uncomfortable times and they would come down, I just, I just, found, I just felt like I was doing something important. Important for that and then also the ideas of what were in Tolkien's mind and heart when he wrote the books that you you looked around and you knew this was, you know, likely gonna be the most substantial, you know, meaningful, impactful, important work I would do in my entire life. So you, you wanted to own it. The hardest part was I had to be fat for two years. <laughs> and that I know I'm a runner. I'm I'm, do, I'm doing the Ironman in Kona triathlon in, in twenty one days. So uh, yeah, I expect you all to be paying close attention to that. Thank you very much. I did the uh, I did the 14k run the uh, the Huda Pool today. Did you know that Cincinnati is hilly? It's very hilly. <laughs> but like I couldn't run. One point I decided Jeremy Woodhead, my makeup artist. We all had we did have makeup artists over the two years, but Jeremy and I got on great. And at a certain point we went to the tennis club and we played tennis. Now I'm fat and I wasn't very good at it, so he would beat me and you know I was terrible. But one day somebody takes a picture, and this is really before paparazzi was kind of, you know, rote or blasé or typical, you know, it was like, so somebody took a picture of me and on the cover of the national newspaper in, in Wellington, there I was in my fitness kit, and when I came to work, Peter, who has this sort of lounge chair sitting behind the monitors, had the newspaper, <laughs> and he was just kind of looking at it, and uh, I came in and he said, more, more lollies for Mr. Aston, please. say, uh, I mean, they just have, they just make different demands on you, I suppose, um, depending what kind of voice acting you're doing. For instance, you know, if you're doing an animated show, you might be in a group, like doing a table read, and you all do your roles at the same time, and they're great fun, you know, but obviously you're not running around the room in the same way. Uh, with motion capture on video games, you know, that's more of a kind of combination of theater and film for me, uh, and they're all... Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I think all of them have more in common than they have, uh, you know, differences, and it's it always comes down to um, trying to tell the truth in whatever you're doing in any situation. You know, whether that's playing Loki or whether it's Dwalin or Dougal McKenzie or whatever it is, you bring that. Um, hopefully, you bring that truth to the scene, and in that sense, they're exactly the same. So, yeah. There's there's a. Um in the voiceover industry, the the working class 
you know, hard scrabble business of doing voiceover acting and kind of rank and file voiceover actors, always get the question, oh, do you do any real acting? And it is, it is just an awful thing. Um, it's harder to go through makeup, get your costume on, go to the set. It takes longer. You, you know, when you're we're filming in front of a camera, um, the, the, you know, if there's stunt sequences, you know, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I go. Ooh, ah! <laughs> on a movie set, you'd be rolling around and jumping, and somebody could accidentally hit you, and like, but, but the performance thing, the truth thing, is exactly it. It's it's about it's about wanting to honor whatever the the essence of that character and story is, and, and what you know. Ultimately, we're professionals. We're we're there to deliver a performance for the people who are paying us. And, and the artists that were the, the filmmakers and, the, and the, in the case of animation, there's like 150 people who are all involved with really making the story. We're just like the icing on top. So, but our job is to try and do be completely true to ourselves, and yet at the same time give them what they want and need. So, and I, you know, so and that I agree completely is the same. Thank you. said that the camera just passed over and you were, they were lost in milliseconds that people had spent weeks creating. There was one in particular, I know Richard um, had Bayon's chair, uh, they, he had one made for him, um, the actual right size <laughs> rather than too big, um, and there was a chessboard and chess pieces, Bayon's chessboard, it was just beautiful. So that really I, was very memorable as a, as a work of art. Uh, I mean, there was some amazing sets, but that was pretty special. Well, I, you say sets. I mean, I, I think of, you know, like there's construction that goes into a set. The, the location of filming on Mount Ropehu, the, the Axe Volcano, or filming on the, the other mountains, I can't remember the name of them, at the top of the South Island, or down in the Remarkables in the, in the bottom of the South Island. Like those, those locations were incredible. The actual sets themselves, the elven you know, uh, Rivendell and the, the way they built those sets in, outside months before even pre-production started and then would allow the, the, you know, natural environment to grow around it. So you had this sense when you got there that they were, that it was real, that it had really been there. You were really discovering kind of ruins or something. It was, so that, that is a, one of a hundred answers we can give you. <laughs> Thank you. I saw a four foot six Stay Puft Marshmallow Man that I thought was pretty great. 
great. I don't know how they, but he must have, it didn't seem to have like a fan in it or something, but it was puffed up, and I, I, I remarked, look, it's a staple punch, by the way. Well, I didn't see, I saw it yesterday, actually, but a gentleman uh, wore my costume from Outlander. He was dressed as Dougal McKenzie, and, and it was a, a remarkable piece of work. I mean, it was it was like he'd stolen it from my trailer. Uh, it was, it, it, yeah, he looked fantastic, so yeah, he stands out for me. And I bet if you would have told security, you would have won the who do you, who's got more credibility thing. You could have got out of costume. What's the funniest thing that happened on set? Superlatives are hard. What's something funny that happened on set is easy to answer. What's the funniest thing? I go into some sort of like nervous breakdown. Trying to think how <laughs> the, the boys would um, uh, have, do practical jokes on each other, uh, including flaming bags of <laughs> dung outside each other's rooms, you know? <laughs> You just hear somebody screaming and other people laughing, and you're like, I'm just going to keep my door locked for a while. You know, Ian, uh, Ian was particularly naughty in terms of uh, adjusting the dialogue when the camera wasn't on him. So we were constantly being given lines, well, like, instead of, if I say that Bilbo Baggins is a burglar, uh, a burglar he is, he would change it to, if, if I say that Dildo Diggins is a burglar, <laughs> And, and then the camera was on us, and we had to try and react to this and, uh, in character. Uh, it was, that was pretty good. Come to think of it, Ian is the one who turned us all on to the fan fiction. <laughs> Thank you. I played the title character, Rudy. There were no additional Rudys hanging around at that time. Which one did you like better, playing in The Hobbit or Rudy? Uh, well, I'm going to say Rudy because I wasn't in The Hobbit. If he asked Lord of the Rings, Actually, it's the same feeling as playing Samwise. 
I was too dumb to know how important it was to so many people. <laughs> so I just did what I thought was right. And afterwards, when I realized the effect it was having, I, I uh, was very grateful that I worked with people who knew how to um, give me good direction and protect me from bad decisions or things that would have 50,000 screaming Irish fans coming at me with. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, it's actually a more sophisticated question than I thought was going to happen, so thank you for that. Were you actually running in the last football game? Was I actually running in the last football game? Well, it was only 27 seconds, so no matter what it was, it wasn't a lot of running, but... Um, <laughs> My character, yes, basically the way we filmed the final sequence in Rudy was, it was during the Boston College Notre Dame football game, sold out, uh, and we had, um, Georgia Tech was the team that was being depicted as the opponents in the movie from the early 70s. So the microphones all went out, and the crowd didn't know what was happening. But the band, who gets 15 minutes at halftime to do their routine, was good enough to cut their routine in half and give us seven and a half minutes. So we had a very carefully choreographed routine of plays that could be used. And then we would film parts of the movie other times and they would interact together. But we had to get some of it where you could see all the people. So you only have one chance to do it. And when the actual game with Boston College and Notre Dame came off for halftime, Normally, people would go to the bathroom, go and buy more beer, you know, I don't know, whatever people do at, at halftime. We came on this sort of spectral 1970s era, not sure what's happening, come running onto the field. Nobody left. Nobody sat down. They were all staring at it, you know. We all assumed our natural positions, and I got to come in and run, and I did it by myself. I was me. I got to be me and line up on the defensive line and look over, my wife was sitting there on the sideline and I gave her a look and she looked at me and then I looked back. Now we knew what was gonna happen because we had choreographed it, but there still was this feeling in the moment like what's gonna happen? They And if they hike the ball and the guy drops it, do, do we know to like stop and go back to the beginning? There was, it was a, this was like a, like a Broadway play all of a sudden. He hikes the ball, I go running around, every step I get closer to the guy, the crowd starts screaming, they were into it. They, they knew which team to root for. They understood the basic premise of the game. And so, and then when I sacked the quarterback, they went, they went crazy. And uh, yeah, so thanks for that. We are, are going to have time for about two more. You can't do that. You can't do that. Speed round. Just go through, ask your question. You're not going to get the answer right away. We'll answer as much as we can remember when okay. we get there. You can't have people stand there for a long time and then not get to ask a question. Because in Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, there's a lot of really close relationships between the characters. Are you guys still close with the other actors that you played? Yes, next. Yes. <laughs> when you are on set and acting, how do you decipher your fantasy and the character from the uh, from, from the normal world around you, like the reality around you with people watching you? The same way a child does. Yeah, yeah. Just imagination, that's all. What was perhaps the toughest scene for you guys to film in your careers? 
uh, I would refer to my previous answer. Um, the, no, 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 uh, the fish, the fish was, that was a challenge, I've got to be honest. All day having fish pulled on your head was, was interesting. The football scene in Rudy. <laughs> What was one of your favorite scenes to film in The Goonies? Kissing the girl. As someone who kind of grew up with Sean's roles in Mikey and Rudy and Nuts, how much of yourself really goes into the character? Like, how do you bring that kind of courage and that determination to Thor? I think, they, I think nowadays the movies are so sophisticated and the audience is so sophisticated that it's really hard to, unless it's a very stylized movie where you're doing satirical stuff or something like that, they, they cast people who kind of are what they're supposed to be. So I just try and be as true to myself and the character, and a lot of times they, they happen to overlap. So I'm very grateful that I've been able to do that. All right, thank you. Have you ever wanted to be in a Marvel movie? Yes. In the, in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, what was the prank you hated the most that was told? The prank you hated. Prank. Oh, Billy Boyd uh, and Dominic Monaghan uh, could had a thing where they they could read each other's minds. <laughs> And they had me for three or four days. I was, I was going, I was going mad. I mean, I really—it was not funny anymore. And I was angry at them and trying to get them to tell me how they did this thing. And they're like, "It's not doing good. Right. We're reading each other's minds." Like, I'm gonna—you think of something. I'm gonna point. You tell me what it is. I'm gonna point to it. And and when I point to the thing that is actually what you're thinking, you say yes. And they would go through it. And yeah, I couldn't figure the math didn't work. Like I didn't get. Yeah, I was, that was. And Billy finally took pity on me and let me in on the thing. Well, I would say, uh, to this day, I suspect that the entire fish sequence was a prank. <laughs> say thanks to both of you for helping bring to life something that was very important to me when I was a child. But my question is, was Christopher Lee as awesome as he, as he seemed when you worked with him? I got to fly to Los Angeles with him from Auckland, sitting next to each other. The depth and breadth of his knowledge and his life experience. I'm a talker. <laughs> Except on that flight. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sad that he's, he lived a great life, a long life, and uh, but I, it is, it is a, a sad passing. Thank you. Dwan is definitely the best one. Fellowship did the tattoo thing where they all got the nine. Did the dwarves do the same thing? Uh, no, we um, we didn't do the tattoo thing. We did the ring thing. So um, this is a, this bronze ring that's in the middle of my finger there um, has on the inside because the dwarves hide their treasure. They it's the entire journey of the dwarves uh, in the movie uh, that the guy uh, who made the one ring uh, made for us, um, and so all the dwarves have those. Yeah. You married the dwarves? <laughs> yes. We are now married. And then real quick, have you listened to the commentaries, especially in The Lord of the Rings? All the actors are like, I don't remember doing that scene. What I'm glad about everything. Uh, honestly. I'm going to be over there. Somebody's going to come up in line and say, well, I, 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 that was really great what you said. And I'm going to be like, what did I say? I don't even remember. <laughs> uh, my question is primarily for Sean. Uh, how do you like your potatoes? <laughs> Boiled, mashed. 
Take a list, dude. Between the two of you guys, I know uh, Peter filmed a lot of separate sequences, like a year apart. Like I know the summer turned into the new FX fellowship. How was how hard was it to go back to those scenes that you had filmed a year ago? Uh, well, yeah, no, it, it wasn't actually that difficult, personally. I mean, I found uh, you could just jump back into it, and, it's, and we had the help of having it all to, to hand, so he was able to show us what we'd been doing beforehand, so we, had, we didn't completely forget. Uh, but no, I didn't find it difficult. The worst part was that you spent a year getting more in touch with the character and getting better, and you'd show up to do the other side, and he was happy just to do the bit that he didn't have. And you'd want to start over and do the whole thing, and he wouldn't do it. So you, you're left thinking, you know, the first half of it is good, the second half is great, and, uh, you know, so that was hard. Very, you know, this idea of what, you know, what are the gray havens? You know, somebody asked me, and I said, Frodo lives. You know, it's like, um, so that was emotional. It was, which I think is what you want to know. It was, it was the, the bringing that up and, and saying goodbye is actually easy to get emotional as an actor because that sensation, we all know what that means to say, but the nature of saying goodbye. I forgot to put my vest on. The, one nice pretty vest that the elves gave me after the lunch. So it was the continuity was wrong, so we had to go and reshoot it. <laughs> I maintained that no one would know the difference, but so that was hard. <laughs> and uh, my condolences to uh, Christopher Lee. I just want to say that uh, sitting here listening to you, you're a fantastic storyteller, and you have such amazing tales. I want to know, like, are you planning on writing a book about all these little stories and things that happened during filming the movie, or? I did one. You did? You right after, it's called There and Back Again, an Actor's Tale. Yeah! Uh, I didn't put nearly enough of the cool kinds of stuff we're talking about here. It's, a, it's an oral history, really, I feel. <laughs> Thank you for a good compliment. Who wins in a foot race, the Fellowship or Thorin's company? <laughs> in a foot race? In a foot race. Oh, I, I, I think the Fellowship would win, to be honest. I mean, we were carrying 70 pounds on our backs running, so I think we would probably, wearing size 18 boots. Um, yeah, we would run, we would sprint. We would be running our hearts out, and Peter would say, yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, can you go faster? <laughs> so, they would win. What, 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 what distance were you thinking? I'm a runner, so I'm curious. Are we in marathon or 100 yard dash? I was thinking marathon, then I thought fun run, but I'm not sure what the distance was. Anything longer than a 100 yard dash, fellowship for sure, because dwarves are only deadly, or only quick over short distances. Should have known it! So cute. You can't see it because her back is to you, but I'm looking at such a pretty face right now. Go ahead, what are you thinking? Are 
when you step back, he'll ask you a question, then you get the last question. Compose yourself, young lady. You're so sweet. Hi, I'm just wondering, uh, what's uh, your most memorable moment on the set with uh, Ian McKellen? And what's it going to take to get McKellen to come to a Comic-Con? Because I've been wanting to meet this guy for years. Yeah, well, I, d I don't know um, whether he'll do one, but uh, there were so many. He was absolutely fantastic. To be honest with you, my favorite moments with Ian were, you know, pranking aside and all the rest of it. We watched, was watching him work, you know, as an actor. And it was a great privilege to be in some of the scenes that he was in and see uh, a master at work. And we all felt that when we would sit around in Bag End, etc. Yeah, I mean, he was very funny, but uh, very professional and very, very good at what he does. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we, our makeup bus was like a hollowed out 18 wheeler with four stations, makeup stations. It was a federal case to get all the ears and the, everything, wigs and everything. And then at the Closest to the front, there was a, a door, a sliding door, and there was another, like a, a standalone chair, that sort of for the queen or whatever. I say that because, so, so, so he would he would be in his makeup bus, and Elijah Wood was the DJ. He would bring in every day these large uh, binders of, of CDs, and and he took great joy in in sort of you know. DJing the morning for everybody, starting at four in the morning. And I, I just always loved at a certain point of the DJ, the door in between where we were and where Ian was would just slowly close. <laughs> um, he, he's, he's such a, I think to get him to come to an event, there would have to be something culturally specific and unique. The, you know, these conventions, the things that make them special is that it's you today, and it's you today. You know, and we're here together today. But the idea of it, there's thousands of these things. So I think he'd have to, somebody'd have to appeal to him on a level of like, this is why these people are getting together, like Woodstock or something, you know, and the, or a gay rights thing or something, something like that. He, you can get him. He can, he's he's a clever, funny game guy. Like he'll go for certain stuff, but he just doesn't want to feel like he's. He's just got a lot of choices of what he learns to do with his time, you know? And I, I would watch him and see how he'd make decisions from performance things to what he was going to do on the weekend, how he would talk about the plays he had done. And he's just he's just cool from top to bottom. Let's see if she can get through her question now. As I was saying, your movies have impacted my life so incredibly. And I was wondering if ever believe that you would make such an impact on the world and people there? Um, everybody makes a big impact on the world. Everybody. It's, it's pretty visible when a, when a movie comes out and it literally makes three or four billion dollars and you know that people all over the world have seen it in hundred languages and you know but I think in those moments I don't think of it as me I think of it as you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional actor second generation actor and I learned something from my parents about what that means I mean this this is if you look at plumbers or carpenters or whatever 10,000 years of, of tradition and, and craftsmanship and stuff goes into their their work and it's a there's pride in it and it's the same thing for acting 
acting is no less important than, I mean, maybe medicine and plumbing are more important, but, you know, <laughs> when, once the person's healed and once they've got a house to live in, then what are they gonna do? At a certain point, human emotions need to be processed and reflected back, and that—that's—that's what—that's what, that's what we do. So, so to me, I'm like—I'm uh, just a vessel, man. I'm just a vessel. I, I let those. I'm there to try and deliver it, and and if people are moved by it, you know, it's the music. Watch Rudy without the music. Not as good a movie. You know what I mean? Like, there's a million other things to focus on, and I, I love coming to these conventions because you can touch other people and like physically shake hands, give you a hug, and it, it val it's very good ego boost. I go home and my wife and kids like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> but here you get this feedback all day long for two days about how people have been moved and, and that, it makes it real. So that's, it makes it even, it makes it tangible and specific and you could hold it in the palm of your hand. So I never take that for granted. My father always taught me that every human interaction is sacred. So the hard thing is that you can't have interactions with everyone you wish you could have interactions with because sometimes you have a mission, sometimes you have your responsibility, sometimes you just want to do something and you can't you can't hug everyone physically. So you just hope I just hope that the goodness of the moments that happen, whether it's somebody watching a television show or a movie or something like that, or a personal interaction like this, I just hope that sends something good and positive out that that yeah, well they can't be diminished in any way ever. Hey, Joey, why don't you come over here and spray paint your name on the wall? But I don't wanna. What are you, chicken? Hold on there, boys. Wow, it's Flint. Instead of writing your name, write CandairPodcast.com and help spread the word. Well, that's a great idea. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend, and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show, wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.